This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is useful. Hello, Equity Mates. Given how quickly things are changing in markets at the moment and a lot has happened over the last few months, we just wanted to put some context to the date at which we recorded this interview with Tobias. We sat down with him on the 21st of May 2020. So just keep that in mind when listening. And uh, we very much hope you enjoy this interview with him as we had a fantastic time. So enjoy. Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast where we help you learn to invest in 45 minutes or less. We break down the world of investing from beginning to dividend so that you can hopefully make some returns. My name's Bryce, and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How's it going, bro? I'm very good, Bryce. Very excited for this interview. We have another returning guest who we first had on the show in our very early days back in 2017. Yes, continuing with our expert investor series and perhaps we managed to convince our guest back in the day how big we thought we were (laughs) and for him to come on the show and he fortunately said yes. But since then, a lot has changed and we're very excited to welcome Tobias Carlisle back to the show. Tobias, thanks for your time today. Thanks so much for having me. I only came on because it was called Equity Mates and it sounded like fun. (laughs) hopefully the fun continues in this episode yeah we've got a lot more serious in the last three years serious or spurious (laughs) uh well you'll you'll find out i guess (laughs) for those that haven't uh, had an opportunity to to listen to our first episode with tobias we recommend that you go back and do that but just a, a quick rundown on who tobias is studied at the university of queensland bachelor of business majoring in finance and a bachelor of law as you probably heard by his accent he is an aussie and now living in the states started his law career at uh, a couple of australia's more prominent law firms before pivoting into investment management in 2010 with trojan investment management he's now the founder and managing director of acquirers funds llc He's the portfolio manager of the Deep Value Strategy, which we'll dig into in a bit. Uh, he's the author of The Acquirer's Multiple and Deep Value and founder of The Acquirer's Multiple, which is a website offering stock screening and portfolio investment strategy. So a lot to unpack. We're pretty pumped to have you, Tobias. So let's get stuck in. That sounds fun. Tobias, we like to start these interviews with a bit of a game. We call it overrated or underrated. Perhaps it should be called overvalued or undervalued. But essentially, we throw out an index, an investing theme or an idea, and we get your thoughts on it just to get a sense of who you are as an investor and how you're thinking about markets. So are you up for playing? Yeah, for sure. Let's do it. Well, we're an Australian podcast, so we like to start locals. So overrated or underrated, the ASX 200 index. Globally underrated, overrated by Aussies. 
<laughs> nice. I like that answer. I like that answer. Yeah. Overrated or underrated? The Nasdaq. Overrated. Overrated everywhere. Pete, as listeners will hear, you're a a deep value investor, and so looking at some of the valuations in that index, that's not a surprise. Yep. Next one, overrated or underrated index investing? Yeah, that's a tough one because it depends on the index. I would say uh, it's probably mostly overrated, but there's nothing necessarily wrong with index investing. Overrated or underrated investing in emerging markets? Underrated. Nice one. Now, this next one might be a little bit unfair given you're now uh, based in the States and probably aren't keeping too close an eye on it, but it's obviously a big topic in Australia, so we're going to ask you it anyway. Overrated or underrated, the Australian residential property market? Yeah, that is that is a little bit tougher. I do read <laughs> I do read the Aussie newspapers every day just so I know what's happening. I think that property has been, you know, since I was like earning money since I started working and I started working 2000, April 2000, it's always been really expensive. So I'm guessing, I would guess that it's still overrated, but I'll probably need to get some advice from you guys in a moment. Yeah, still very expensive. It, nothing's changed. It just keeps running. The only place more overrated in terms of property than Australia is bloody California. <laughs> I was just about to ask <laughs> the flip side. <laughs> really, where you're living right now. Oh, it's just bananas expensive here. Yeah, wow. So overrated or underrated the impact of coronavirus on the US economy? Yeah, that's a that's a really tough one. And that's it's getting really political over here. I would say I was nervous about it, really nervous about it initially. As it's gone on, I think I've got less nervous about the virus itself, but I think that the impact is pretty serious. And if you look at the market over here, you wouldn't necessarily know that. So I'd say that it's probably underrated at the moment. Yeah, we're, we're keen to unpack that in uh, later in this conversation because watching from afar and seeing the disconnect between the market rebound and the conversations around the US economy, it's deeply confusing and something's going to have to give one way or another, it feels like. That's it. I'll just be adding to the confusion, just to be clear, but, but I, have some, I have some thoughts. That's great. That's great. But to finish off this game, last one, overrated or underrated Bitcoin? Yeah, that's another, that's another really tough one. From my perspective, Bitcoin is currency and I just don't trade any currency because I don't have any edge in it. So it's hard because I, I would say that for the Bitcoiners, it's overrated. But for the very vast majority of the population who don't know what it is, it's probably underrated. So you've probably got to weight it underrated. Yeah, well, we're on finance Twitter. We're not so much participating, but we definitely observe it. And there's definitely a lot of people rating it on finance Twitter. So we're interested to see how the Bitcoin story plays out. Yeah, for sure. So Tobias, if we move to your background, hopefully a lot of people have listened to the last episode, but... For people that haven't, Bryce obviously gave an overview of your background, but can you tell us the story of how you went from studying law at the University of Queensland to managing money in Southern California? That does sound like a funny path, doesn't it? <laughs> I grew up in a little <laughs> country like a town. <laughs> I grew up in a little country town, the Australian outback, had no idea. I grew up in Roma in Queensland, just had no idea what kind of jobs you could do. I thought there was like, you could be a doctor. I mean, as a professional, you could be a doctor, a lawyer, an accountant, maybe like a dentist. They were the only professions that I really knew about in town. None of them sounded very good. My dad said, be a lawyer. 
because they make lots of money. Turns out that's not true, but I did that anyway. <laughs> Went and worked at Minters and Cores in, I don't even know if they're called that anymore because they've all been taken over by Magic Circle firms. They've got brand new names now, but they were, I was in M&A, did some private equity and it was just an interesting time because I started close to the top of the market in the dot-com boom in 2000, April 2000. Thought I'd be doing like lots of venture capital, tech type deals. Market crashed like in the first few weeks that I was starting there. I didn't really know that the market had crashed. I didn't know anything about the stock market, wasn't really following it. Um, just noticed that the work went from being kind of all of this capital raising and IPOs or, or floats in Australia to mergers and acquisitions and fixing these busted listings and, and that sort of thing, which I found really interesting. And there are these new guys who appeared who are all corporate raiders from the 80s who came back and were chasing after these cashed up dot-com businesses. And I couldn't figure out why. Like I'd read Buffett's, I'd read Intelligent Investor, read Buffett's letters, read Security Analysis, you know, not very closely, but I read them and I had that rough idea that Buffett liked these high return on equity businesses that were kind of undervalued. You know, none of these things had businesses. They were just basically selling books in Australia at a loss raising venture capital, selling books or something like that at a lot. D-Store, I don't know if you guys remember those kind of companies. There are lots of these things around. There was this bloke from Western Australia who was a lawyer, Farouk Faruqi, I think his name was. Farouk Khan, maybe I'm forgetting that. He's still around, I think. And he went, he would chase after these and, you know, try to get control of the cash. Finally figured it out that that's what he was doing. And I thought it was a really interesting strategy. And so I went back and I reread security analysis. There's these chapters in the early editions because I was the kind of freak who thinks you got to read the first edition to kind of get the real juice that <laughs> everything gets worse as it gets polished as it goes along. And they talk about that. It's like ch chapter 28, Graham talks about liquidation value investing, net current asset value investing, net nets. And I kind of got that you could look at the balance sheet and work out what these things were worth. And Australia's got this history of like corporate rating for these kind of businesses, you know, with Robert Holmes Accord and then subsequently guys who didn't do it as well, but like Alan Bond, Scacy and all these guys who did it. That was what was sort of happening when I was growing up. So I was kind of aware of it. I thought if these net nets ever come around again, I want to go and try and invest in these things. And in 2007, to 2009, they actually reappeared. And so I, I had worked in the States as a lawyer by that stage in San Francisco doing some tech M&A, and then I'd come back to Australia to work as general counsel of a listed telco called Pipe Networks, which has been taken over, got taken over in 2008 or nine. And I was working in Trojan Investment Management, working for Troy Harry, and he was looking for undervalued assets with a catalyst, and he'd provide the catalyst sort of like act activist investing, but not always. He's just, he's looking for undervalued assets, very similar strategy. And I didn't want to have any conflict with what he would do and what I could invest in. So I started looking in the States also because my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, was American and I had a plan to come back eventually. So I thought it would be more helpful to be familiar with the US markets and with Gap. And there are just a lot more net nets around in the States because it's a bigger market and they're just that things that get picked over. If you're an Aussie, you get used to investing in these smaller, you know, stock prices below a dollar don't bother you because the listing rules say you can list it to 20 cent stock price in the States. That's like a busted IPO. So people get really nervous, you know, the penny stocks and things like that over here. That didn't bother me at all. And I found that uh, through 2000, I started writing a little blog in 2008 called Greenbacked. The whole idea was just find these net nets or sub-liquidation value companies where they had an activist on board who was trying to bust them open and get the cash 
And I bought a whole lot of them, did really well. They were all very public. The opportunity then disappeared. And so I had to kind of work out what I was going to do. And I wanted to use the same philosophy of like finding these things that were really deeply undervalued. You're kind of looking for balance sheet value, but with a little business attached to it that is doing really badly, but could do better. And when it does better, you get valued on a business basis rather than kind of on the balance sheet. I did some research, found this guy through my blog, through Greenbacked, who was a PhD at Booth, which is kind of the best quantitative school over here. Uh, it's the old Chicago School of Business, and we partnered to go and find every bit of academic and industry research that we could on invest value investment, fundamental investment strategies, credit, anything that would tell you whether a company was healthy, whether it was undervalued, whether it was in distress, whether there was earnings manipulation or fraud, whether it was making lots of money and it was just kind of hidden, if it was buying back stock, if it was heavily shorted, all these things. We built this model. The book is called Quantitative Value. It came out in 2012, published by Wiley. And that, there's a fund that was set up to trade that strategy called Quantitative Value. Ticker in the States is QVAL, QVAL. I have nothing to do with it, but it runs that same strategy. While we were doing that, though, I was sort of, because I'm more of a deep value guy than a, than a kind of Buffett-style investor, I just noticed that there were all of these really weird things that happened to these businesses when they got deeply undervalued. So I wrote a second book that came out in 2014 called Deep Value. And that one talks about what activists do, what private equity firms do. And that's sort of, that's the real genesis of the strategy that I run today. So I wrote another book. I realized that basically picking stocks is about half the battle. You've got to be able to manage your portfolio. That's, that's literally half the battle or more. So you can, you know, make sure you're sizing up good opportunities and sizing down worse ones. And that's called Concentrated Investing, came out in 2016, went and interviewed all of these guys who had 25-year-plus track records of outperformance, including Munger, Charlie Munger. Oh, wow. Lou Simpson, who ran Geico's equity book for a long time. Christian CM, who's known as the Nordic Warren Buffett because he's like an oil and gas kind of investor with this incredible track record. Glenn Greenberg, who's the brave warrior, used to be chieftain capital. And basically, then did some quantitative analysis as well. So the final book that I wrote in 2017 was called The Acquirer's Multiple, which is just basically a distillation of all of my strategy. And then I launched a fund called The Acquirer's Fund, which is US domestic equities only, mid-market and above, mid-cap. So it's roughly $2 billion minimum up to anything, up to the biggest companies in the market. And we look for the kind of things that activists and private equity firms do try to get long about 30 names and try and short about 30 names but we're we tend to be much more heavily long than we are short so we're currently a hundred percent long 30 percent short but we're likely to be most of the time like 130 percent long 30 percent short which is about net 100 percent and that's been running since may last year just had the one year anniversary and that's the story wow it's a fascinating story I think it's a particularly cool story that, you know, you started in one field and just found an interest in finance and, you know, you started with a blog and it's taken you to three books and a managed fund uh, in another country. It's a pretty inspiring story for what Bryce and I are, you know, trying to do as we work one job but have found a passion for finance. I appreciate that. Thank you. I think if we move to your investing philosophy, because it's a fascinating one and it's one that I think intuitively makes a lot of sense for people. So deep value, I guess, can we start with 
What's the difference between value investing and deep value investing? Value investing is just the catch-all term for trying to buy something for less than it's worth. And that's easy to say. All of the ratios and things are easy enough to calculate, but it is pretty hard to do. You find over time, companies are for the most part pretty much correctly valued or overvalued on the market. But if you're patient, you can find stuff that's undervalued. When I say deep value, that's to distinguish it from, so Buffett has this method of valuing companies where he looks for what he calls wonderful companies at fair prices. So his definition of a wonderful company is something that has a sustainable high return on invested capital. So that means it's better than average, basically. It's a business that you can put it, that the management can invest a dollar into and it returns better than about a dollar thirteen, which is about the average return on equity, about 13% for stocks listed in the US. And so that company should be valued at a premium. And if you can find them available at a discount to the market average, this is not exactly the way it's done, but just, just as a, like a rough idea of what is happening, then that's a company that you can buy and it will compound over time. And so the growth in the company, your own holding, your own return will eventually match the growth in the underlying business. Plus you get a little bit more because you bought it at a discount to what it's probably worth. What I do is something a little bit different. Buffett says he doesn't like to invest in fair companies at wonderful prices, but that's my strategy. So basically, I don't care so much what the current return on invested capital is for a business. What I'm looking for is something that's just deeply undervalued. And the the metric that I like is the acquirer's multiple, which is enterprise value to operating income. So I'm just looking, what are you paying? You take account of the debt and the cash that it has and any other kind of liabilities, preference shares, underfunded pensions in the States, uh, minority interests, those sort of things. Give it credit for the cash. That's what you're actually paying in addition to the market cap. And that can be bigger or smaller than the market cap. And then you compare that residue of what you're actually paying for to the operating income coming into the business. And that's the recurring income that comes in that excludes any one-off sales And the idea is that that sort of company is something that's attractive to, when it's cheap on that basis, that's attractive to private equity and to activists because private equity likes to lever these companies up when they take them private, pay a little premium, take it private, make some money, flip it back onto the stock market. Activists like something similar. Maybe the balance sheet's a little bit lazy because it's got too much cash. And so they want to pay that cash out and that's just found money if the valuation doesn't change when you do that. Sorry, I don't know if you can hear my kids in the background. We're all quarantined together here. (laughs) Basically, Joel Greenblatt, another great US investor, tested Buffett's strategy quantitatively, wrote the most successful value investing book over the last like 15 years probably called The Little Book That Beats the Market. And he updated it to The Little Book That Still Beats the Market. His strategy is called The Magic Formula. Basically, just wonderful companies are ones that have a high return on invested capital at a fair price is sort of a low price on an EBIT basis, very similar to my acquirer's multiple. When I test that strategy, it does quite well. It beats the market, throwing everything that you can think of at that strategy to make sure that it is the returns are real. But when I take away the quality metric, when I take away the wonderful company requirement and you just use the value requirement, you find that you get better performance on a raw basis and on a risk-adjusted basis, which really makes no sense at all. But it's the case and it and it works. The only times that it sort of underperforms are through periods like we've just gone through where the market is overvalued and it tends to be picking 
companies that are growing at a faster rate. So there are periods like this. There are about six times where this has happened in the data. They all happen at the very end of bull markets. And we're currently going through one now. This is the longest one that has ever occurred before. So there's lots of uh, big quantitative investors over here. AQR is probably the most well-known, run by Cliff Asness. He's written this series of articles saying this is the best value opportunity he has seen in the data. Rob Arnott, who runs uh, Research Affiliates, another multi-hundred billion dollar firm, has been saying the same thing. I did some research over the weekend and published this on Monday called Is Value a Value Trap? Same thing. Just take any value metric, price to earnings, price to cash flow, price to book, enterprise value to EBITDA, enterprise value to EBIT, run it back against its own average. They're in that value portfolio, everything is is cheaper than it's ever been before, basically. And that's funny because everybody remembers the dot-com peak as being the last time that value really materially underperformed. And we're kind of there or maybe even a slightly better opportunity than then. So deep value is sort of not so much caring about the quality of the business, looking more for the undervaluation. I have a, It's not that I don't care about the quality of the business. It's just that I have a different definition of quality. And my definition of quality is a cash-rich balance sheet, accounting earnings that turn into cash flows, a management that's taking advantage of the undervaluation by buying back stock or doing something else that enhances value. And I find that those things together do very well, but it hasn't done as well in, in this market that sort of favors the techier kind of names. That's it. Mm. I'm sure by now our audience are probably wondering how on earth you actually find these stocks. And I'm sure there's a lot that goes into it. But are you able to just broadly explain your your process of, of finding such stocks? Absolutely. So, you know, I, I've got this quantitative model that has been built. You know, we built something like it for, quantit- for the book Quantitative Value, and then it's been refined over about a decade. And the reason that you need to refine your quant model is the first time you do any kind of back testing and then run a screen, you find that the numbers that it's, that the names that get spit out of the screen kind of don't make any sense. For whatever reason, it just sort of fools the model. And you look at these names and you know that they're all sort of uninvestable. And so it's taken a long time to keep on iterating between the model and the output to get a strategy that works really well in backtests. So it looks like it's a good strategy when you run it over all of the data that we have running to running back to about 1963 point in time, wow. but also gives you a portfolio that you could buy that you'd feel comfortable investing in. So it's not spitting out silly names, it's spitting out names that intuitively as a value guy you would look at and you would say, well, I know that that's a good business. It's got a good balance sheet. It's got lots of cash flow and I think it's undervalued. So that's the first stage of the process. As a lawyer, I did a lot of, you know, one of the things that you do as a junior lawyer is diligence on acquiring companies or on, you know, if stock, if stock is going to be part of the transaction or on, on the target. And so that's going into a data room with a whole lot of sweaty accountants and investment <laughs> bankers and other lawyers and picking through all of these folders. So I've done a lot of that through my career. I don't do that now with the uh, data room. I've got to do it with public documents. And that's a tedious kind of process that takes a long time. So I actually use a service now that does it for me, but it's the same idea. They do a forensic accounting diligence on the on the accounts because there's a lot of wiggle room in the publication of accounts. There's a lot of stuff that gets pushed into the notes and there's a lot of interpretation and that can affect the valuation. So you don't want something that's hidden in the notes that is material that should be on the balance sheet or sh- you know could be reducing earnings or something like that. So I use a service that digs through all of these things 
And that's the final sanity check, just to make sure that there's no convertible note or something that will convert and will hand a big chunk of the company to some VC or something like that. You've got to be very careful of that stuff in the States. And so that's the process. Basically, the model spits out the names, long and short, fed through this forensic accounting diligence service that actually hasn't ever resulted in many changes to the portfolio. I think it may have they may have eliminated one long once. It's mostly the model, but that's basically the idea. So we're just making sure that we take what has been tested and what we know to work, doing a final sanity check, and then that's the portfolio, rebalanced on a quarterly basis. But we try to hold for longer than a quarter, so we don't rebalance the whole portfolio. We're only rebalancing a portion of the portfolio when we do that. Mm. Now, Tobias, if people are interested in some of the names that your screens are spitting out, they can actually do that online. Can you just tell us where we can go and look if we want to see it? So I have uh, a website called acquirersmultiple.com. That's got this free screener. It just looks in the top thousand names and it spits out the 30 names that best meet the criteria that I've just described long. It doesn't look at financials or utilities. There's a paid service that you can access. Looks at the all investable is the top half of all stocks by market cap. Small and micro is the smaller part of smaller half of the market. The fund itself sort of takes that screen as and includes financials and utilities and then has that additional bit of work that I described before done to it. So the fund and the screen itself are sometimes a little bit different, but there is quite a lot of overlap between the two because I do think that the the screen on the site is quite good. But the model for the fund, there's just a little bit more in it because of that second stage and the universe is slightly different. But the fund is the acquirer's fund and the ticker's ZIG. All of the holdings for that are publicly available too on acquirersfund.com. I like it. I like it. Now, if we look at the acquirer's multiple, you said it before was operating earnings to enterprise value or EBIT to enterprise value. When we think about the economic situation that we're in now, where operating earnings for the rest of the year and potentially for years to come are so uncertain, do you do anything in your screens or in your models to account for that uncertainty? So here's the thing. As a value guy, you're always kind of going into situations that are uncertain. It's just sort of the nature of value investment that really good opportunities don't appear until the company stubs its toe. And so there's always a question, will the next quarter or two look like the last one or will there be some impact on the business? So I haven't at all changed what I do through this process because I just think it's one of those opportunities that you rarely get where, so we rebalanced March 20, which was very close to the low this time around. And we picked up names that I would never have expected in a million years to get cheap enough for me to buy because they're such high quality names. And so I can give you as an example, Berkshire Hathaway, which is Warren Buffett's company, through my entire investing career has only been cheaper on one other occasion or was as cheap on one other occasion. And that was March 6, 2009, right at the very bottom. And it's only bounced a little bit from then. So it's still an incredibly cheap business, but it's also a very high quality business. It's got $137 billion in cash. It's got cash flow of about $20 billion a year. Plus it owns all of these other securities that have look through earnings of about $20 billion. So it's got $40 billion of cash flow, $440 billion market capitalization. If you back all of that out, you can see basically on an 
at, on an EV EBIT basis, it's trading somewhere between seven and 10 times, which is just sort of crazy cheap for something that's run by the greatest value investor to probably walk the earth, but certainly who's alive today. So that's sort of company that we would buy where there's some concern. Have they written some insurance that might be impacted by the shutdown? What will the next quarter look like? What will the next year look like? Maybe, we don't know. But you've got to kind of trust that management know what they're doing. The company has been run conservatively for a really long period of time, for 50 years, and it's unlikely that they've done anything silly this time around. And they've probably got the financial resources to weather whatever happens. So that's the kind of stuff that I'm looking for. I want a really conservative balance sheet, solid cash flows, kind of almost no matter what happens. Although I know Southwest Airlines which is a domestic carrier over here, which is important because international flights are largely stopped. Domestic flights are still ongoing, even though they're still losing money. You get this opportunity to buy it at this ridiculously reduced price. Some question over whether they can make it through, but if any airline can make it through, it'll be Southwest because they've got the lowest cost structure, the best balance sheet, and they're the most profitable on assets. So I don't think there's any question about what happens to these things long term. The question is what happens to them in the short term. And that's exactly the kind of opportunity that you want as a value guy. So you mentioned, Tobias, that there's a, a lot of opportunity out there at the moment. But over the last sort of 10 years or so, we've witnessed a record bull run across the markets. And I imagine that it would mean that finding deep value becomes harder and harder. So firstly, is that a, a correct assumption? And if so, do you adjust your process somewhat to increase that pool of opportunity? Or do you just sort of sit tight and wait for a moment like this to come? So it's a funny market. It's quite a bifurcated market in a sense that the very techie names, so if you look at the S&P 500, for example, a very large portion of it is what they call FanMag, Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google, Apple, Microsoft, and that's generating something like 20% of the free cash flow of the index, and that's driving a lot of the return in the index. And so the other 80% sort of become less and less relevant to that index, which is kind of amazing. And it's something that you really only see at market peaks. That's not to say that I don't think those businesses are great. Those are phenomenal businesses. They're just very, very expensive at the moment. And that has happened before in the late 1990s. Stocks got very good. Stocks got very, very expensive and then traded sideways for a decade. That doesn't exactly answer your question. So what is happening is value stocks have kind of, they did really well, depending on how you were doing it. But you could basically kept up with the market or beat the market up until about 2017 or 2018. This is assuming that you're not just running a straight systematic value kind of strategy, which nobody really does. Most people are running, you know, they've got additional quality metrics like I was describing before, cash on the balance sheet, cash flow conversion of accounting earnings into cash flow for the business, buying back stock. All of those sort of things indicate a high quality management and a high quality business. When you add those things in, you kept up with the market until about 2018, but it's lagged since then. And so that value opportunity set has actually been getting unusually rich and unusually high quality. And it's now at this point where the value opportunity set in the States in particular is among the best it's ever been, despite the fact that the market's really overvalued. In order for that to happen, value has to kind of lag and it doesn't do as well. And so it's been painful, you know, basically since the end of 2017 through to date, being a value guy because the market has rocketed ahead and value hasn't done as well. But now when I look at it, 
the spread between the most overvalued and the most undervalued is the widest it has ever been. And that's being driven by both an overvaluation at extreme on the expensive side and also an undervaluation extreme on the cheap side, which is very unusual to see both of those things together. So I think what happens from here, value is an unusually good opportunity. The spread will close eventually over time. I'm not calling it right now, although there's some indication that it may have started happening around about April 2nd. That doesn't necessarily mean anything. It could find a new low. It's just that I watch it pretty closely. So I have watched it sort of start closing a little bit. And the undervalued leg has started outperforming the the market since April 2nd too. So I sort of think where the opportunity doesn't last very long, you can go back and look at other peaks. There was one in 2000 and there was one at the very bottom in 2009. They're over very quickly and the very vast majority of the returns of the whole cycle come in this year or two from the bottom. And I think we're kind of there. The opportunity set is great and it looks like it's closing. So I'm very fortunate to have got the fund out in time to capture that, which is what I was eager to do. It would have been an absolute disaster catastrophe if I'd missed that, but it looks like <laughs> looks like we've caught it, even though that means that the first year of running the fund, it's underperformed. It hasn't been great, but I kind of think the future is much better for it and it should be a good five or 10 years or so, I think. Well, we're looking forward to watching it all play out. You've said that there's it's a great time for value and that there's a lot of opportunity. Are there any specific names that are you know really flashing up again and again in your screens and that you're paying particular attention to at the moment? Yeah, you, I'll come back in a few years' time and you can, you can remind <laughs> me that I said this and how badly it's gone since. But a handful of names that I really like at the moment. Berkshire is really hard to pass up just because it's going to be hard to lose money in it. You know, the downside is very minimal, I think, because it's got such a high-quality balance sheet and it owns such high-quality businesses and it's run by Buffett. The issue is Buffett is getting older and it's it's a little bit morbid, but he's going to pass away at some stage in the next you know decade or so, probably. That's not a stretch to say that because I think he's <laughs> 90 now, mm. which is a good, good innings, but lots of blokes get through to 100. Keep on going, carry your bat, get to 113. That'd be great. <laughs> like to see that. But I still think it's like, almost doesn't matter what happens because the guys, there are other guys in there who are Ajit Jain, who runs his reinsurance business, and uh, Ted and Todd, who are the guys who sort of manage a lot of the capital now for Berkshire, know what they're doing. So I don't think it's a, it's a disaster if he passes away. Very sad, but not a disaster for the business. Then there's Markel, which is another insurer run by a sort of Buffett-like investor operator in a gentleman by the name of Tom Gaynor. He's 58 years old. That company has a market cap of about $11 billion against Berkshire Hathaway's $420 billion. So they've got many more opportunities to invest than Buffett does because they can find things that are smaller and will be meaningful for that business. So, And he's got a much longer runway because he's younger. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Want truly hydrated skin? Meet Osea's Body Care Breakthrough, Hyaluronic Body Serum. 
It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER. Very good track record of doing the right thing as they've gone along. Seem to be pretty careful, but, you know, they're not Buffett and it's not Berkshire Hathaway, but it's still a really, really interesting opportunity. I like stuff like Schwab. So that's... uh, online investment and asset management brokerage business in the States. It's probably got the most recognizable name. It's the biggest. It's got a fantastic balance sheet. They've just purchased or they're about to close on TD Ameritrade, which is another big one over here. They paid a premium. So I think they paid about two cents for each dollar of assets in TD and they're currently trading, Schwab is trading for one cent. So that tells me that the valuation that they're putting on other asset management businesses is about two times where they're currently trading in the market. I think that they've been growing over the last three years at about 13% a year. I think that's likely that they keep on growing around that kind of rate. It sounds like everybody's trapped at home for quarantines, doing a lot of trading. Probably need a better app than the one they've got, but that's pretty easily remedied. So I think those are the kind of businesses that there's really no concern for me about the business. There's no concern about the balance sheet. You're not going to lose money in them. And there's a pretty good opportunity to make. I would say that each one of those will outperform the market over the next decade. That's kind of the way that I think through the investment opportunities. So Tobias... Recently, we've had the Berkshire Hathaway annual general meeting, something that all investors pay close attention to. And we'd love to know your thoughts on the fact that we've had this market correction and Buffett and Munger and the rest of those that work at Berkshire have decided not to actually buy anything. What do you think about that? Yeah, that was spooky, honestly. I didn't go to any meetings until kind of a few years ago. I went to my first one in about 2017, I think. Omaha's like going to Toowoomba and I I come from a little country town. So I say this with the greatest love and respect for little country towns, but American country towns are different to Aussie country towns. They've got a city center that looks like downtown Brisbane. Like it's pretty big, but you don't have to go very far away from the city center and you're basically in cow paddocks, which is not quite Brisbane. Maybe it's more like Toowoomba. So it's a funny kind of place to go. And it's a fun meeting because there's 50,000 of your best mates all come in and then everybody goes out in the town centre and, and drinks and you run into Bill Ackman or, you know, all these legends are running around drinking. It's, it's really fun <laughs> to do, only for that reason. Didn't go this year for the obvious reason that it wasn't on, but it was televised. It was very weird. Buffett sitting alone in the auditorium that usually houses 50,000 people kind of under a spotlight with this little slide deck that looked like he'd put it together in like Times New Roman with a few words yeah, on each slide. So <laughs> you'd have been disappointed if you'd seen anything else, right? Like if it had had True. some animation on it or like, I actually think that would have been funny if he'd had a few swirly changes to the to the slides, but it was, it was pretty good. He may as well have just handwritten it. Yeah, well, maybe he did and he handed it to the secretary and she was like, here it is, it's, here's, the, here's the graphics. <laughs> the, the, message, the message was a somber one and the message was a little bit, I was a little bit spooked for it, but I got the Sunday, it was here on Saturday and then I got the Sunday scaries and the Monday scaries from it. And it was basically, they hadn't bought anything, which is completely out of character for them. Every other time that they have done, you know, every other dip, I don't think Buffett has ever missed a dip in his entire career. 
And this time around, they weren't buying as the market went down. And Ted and Todd, who have their own $13 billion or so each to manage, they didn't buy anything either. Instead, what he did was he sold out of the airlines. He sold down a few banks to get under 10%. And he gave this very somber, dour kind of view of the potential impact of coronavirus on business. The, the interpretation that I've seen afterwards as well, they kind of they write these super cat, these big disaster bonds as well, and they, they insure against these things. And so what happens if a hurricane comes through and hits New York while this is going on? You know, that'd be catastrophic and that, they'd have to pay out a lot. So they need to be kind of impregnable if something that, like that happens. It's still something that really makes me a little bit nervous when I think about it. Why does a company with $137 billion and $20 billion in cash flow need to be selling down and not kind of mm. taking advantage of those opportunities that, that were around? Some people say, oh, it was, it was too fast. I remember March really well. March went for a thousand years. March took <laughs> yeah. a really long time. I don't think I slept all month long. I think he knew what he wanted to buy. Either he thinks that there's a second leg to this thing, which is looking, you know, and I, I've been thinking that too. It's, it's looking increasingly kind of silly, but at the times that it looks like the coast looks clearest, that's really the time that you need to be most concerned. So it's possible that there's a second leg. It's possible that the whole collapse is not due to coronavirus. I know that sounds like a weird thing to say, but there's this Cam Harvey over here has this yield curve inversion theory. Basically, when the three-month gets over the 10-year treasuries, that indicates that there's some underlying issue with the economy. And so he wrote this PhD thesis in 1986, and he looked at crashes in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And it preceded every single one of those. And then since he published, it's preceded every other big crash and recession or depression that the States has had without ever having a false positive. And it went inverted in about July last year. And the median time from when it inverts to when the, the market crashes is about 10 months. And right on cue, this uh, collapse kind of showed up. Everybody would say that's silly. Coronavirus is clearly the most proximate reason for that. But it makes me nervous that there is some other thing lurking underneath. And the market has kind of skated well over the top of it. Mm. And in, if, if anything, we're in a slightly worse position than we were before the collapse. And here we are with Ford PEs as stretched as they've ever been. Meanwhile, there's like 30 million Americans out of work. Yeah. or something like that. I'm, I'm, I don't know what the exact numbers are, but they're just sort of mind-bogglingly large numbers that look like kind of Great Depression numbers. Probably a lot of those are furloughed. They're going to come back. But there's got to be some damage. Some businesses are just never going to open up again. I don't know. Maybe the market doesn't doesn't care. I find it hard to believe, but I sort of think that Buffett's got this incredible insight into the economy because of the nature of Berkshire. He's got a big insurance company. He's got a big railway. He's got all of this power generation. So he can see what is happening at a fundamental level. And he still hasn't bought anything. Either he knows something or he's kind of just getting too nervous as he gets old, but he's pretty smart and he doesn't look like he's lost a step to me. So I think it's probably the former. <laughs> so Tobias, on, on that point of the disconnect between the market rally we've seen and the underlying economic conditions, we see some commentators out there talk about it being Fed-driven or a liquidity-driven rally. How much truth do you think there is to that and it's just money being pumped into the system? Or do you think there's something else at play here? That looks like the most obvious 
reason, right? Like it's not surprising strength in the economy because any reports that we've seen from companies, any earnings reports that have come through have been bad. It looks like earnings are down about, I think it was like 20% plus across the board on average. And they were pretty stretched going into this. The only thing that I'd say to that is John Hussman, who's an investor over here, he's been quite bearish for a long time. And so a lot of people write off what he says, but he does have this quantitative approach that I really like. He says, if you go back and look at 2007, 2009 crash, the Fed was printing, you know, firing the bazooka all the way down and it didn't really make any difference. And he says, what drives the market? It's not directly related to the printing. It's the psychological impact of what the Fed does that kind of drives it. And if you look at any big crash, they always have this very big dead cat bounce in them. So 2007 to 2009, the crash started in about June 2007, but the market was pretty much flat in June 2008. All of the crash happened in the second half of that. And that was when the VIX spiked once, the VIX spiked again back to those very high levels. That's the volatility index. And all of the volatility guys made all of their money in the second half of that crash. And there were 14 lower lows, which is excruciating to think about. The 13th one came in like November 2008 and everybody was well and truly worn out by that stage. And there was still another one to come in March 6, 2009. If you go back and look at any other big crash, so last time there was a big flu pandemic in the States, 1918. Market didn't bottom until 1921, but it did crash and then it rebounded and then it sort of eventually found its bottom. Same thing in 1929, there was a big initial crash, but the bottom didn't come around until 1932. There's this very common thing to have a big bear market rally that eventually gets sold off and ends up lower. I just think it's hard for the The market's forward-looking but it's got imperfect information. Everybody's trying to adjust and find the right level. And I think we're kind of in that period now where everybody's sort of saying, this is weird that the market is this high. It looked like the Fed had us on the way through, but what now? And if we start looking at the fundamentals, it looks increasingly ugly. I don't know what happens, but I just, I find it hard to believe that the market just skates over this without kind of at least adjusting a little bit lower. Are you going balls to the wall, though, despite all of that and just uh, taking opportunities as they come or much, much more of a conservative approach? How are you thinking about that? Because a lot of our audience at the moment are also sort of thinking, you know, about how much they should be allocating at the moment. Is there more to come? How do you think through that process? I'm in a very fortunate position to have a portfolio that is long and short. And so what that means is I can pick off long opportunities as I see them and not worry so much about what the market's going to do and pick off short opportunities as I see them and equally not worry about what the market's going to do. Mm -hmm. Having said that, the fund can run 130.30 at its, its, so that's a gross 160. When it's like full sale, the most aggressive long I can get, 130.30. At the last rebalance, it was 100 long, 30 short for a net 70. And the reason for that was just that I didn't know how much I could trust some of those longs just because the market, we didn't have any reporting. We had no idea. Even Berkshire Hathaway, that was no indication of what Berkshire Hathaway looked like. And I know because I've done a lot of testing that you don't really have to buy the very bottom of the dip. You can get in kind of a quarter either side 
and it doesn't really impact your returns that much over the full data set. But if you go a little bit early, you can rip up a lot of capital. So I tend towards the slightly more conservative side because I know that I've got all my own money in this thing and I've got friends and family who are invested in it and I know a lot of people have put a lot of money into it. So I'm, I don't want to blow any of that money up. But I am kind of confronted with this incredible opportunity on the long side Mm-hmm. Equally, I think these sort of these names that are that I'm short are very, very junky and are just balloons looking for something sharp to run into. And I think that at some stage, all of that is going to close up. I would like to get a lot longer soon. I don't really like being in this position. I would much rather be kind of as, as long as I can possibly be, but I don't think we've kind of finally seen it yet. I think that, you know, so basically 70% exposure is still pretty exposed to the market but I would like to be 100% exposed. I want to be 130% long, these value names. So I'll be, I'm eager, itching to do it, but I just don't want to do it too soon because I'm conservative. So I guess that's the imperfect answer. Mm. So Tobias, if we get back to the deep value strategy and you know, you're, you're saying there that you want to be more long, I guess we've spoken a lot about what deep value is and you know how you screen for deep value. I guess the second part of the equation is actually how the value that you found is realized by the market. Can you talk a little bit about if our listeners or yourself or other investors are finding these deep value names and they're putting their money in them, how do you actually expect the market to realize that value and for your shares to actually appreciate? For the most part, it's just that they're too cheap and when they report in the future, they've bought back a lot of stock the value is further concentrated into the shares that are outstanding and they get re-rated up. That's the theory. In the last little while, there's been a little bit of M&A activity. So I had two of my positions. I had Hewlett-Packard, you know, Hewlett-Packard split into two. There's HPE, which is the enterprise, that's the consulting side, and HPQ, which is the part that still makes printers. Because I'm a deep value guy, I bought the part that still makes printers. It turns out that was okay because they were super cheap, really cashy balance sheet, and they caught a bid, which is most important, Xerox bid for them. Carl Icahn was kicking, but he's an activist raider over here, been around forever, really great investor. He was kicking both sides, trying to get them to do a deal. I sold into the bid, which is what I typically like to do because there's a time value of money. I've done some merge arbitrage in the past and I would do that analysis for any given position. In this instance, I just felt like it was a, a just a de-risk a little bit. I sold into that bid, which is what I tend to do, but I always look at it. And the other one was E-Trade caught a bid as well. And so I sold into that bid too. So I expect that for the most part, it's just they're just too cheap and they just kind of go back to an average valuation. But there will be M&A and takeovers and activist attention on these things just by virtue of the fact that they're so cheap and they've got pretty good balance sheets. And so probably, you know, like 5 or 10% of them any any quarter will will get some attention and, and that, that generally gives them a little kick along. So you're not specifically looking for a catalyst in some senses. Sometimes it's just main reversion and the market realizing that they've undervalued something. So there's some good research by O'Shaughnessy Asset Management over here. Factors from Scratch is the name of the paper. They went and looked at what are the drivers to really undervalued companies. And it's a little bit of a, maybe a little bit unexpected, but basically most value companies have subnormal profitability. That's why they're too cheap because people look at them, oh, this is a terrible business. I don't want to own this thing. And it gets sold off too far. When you buy them, 
if you hold them for long enough, you get mean reversion up in the earnings, but over a shorter period of time, over about 12 months, the earnings do tend to keep on going down. But it doesn't matter because they're too cheap. And so what drives the return is multiple expansion. And the reverse is true for the more expensive stocks. They do, the earnings do tend to go up, but people have spent, paid too much for them and the multiples tend to compress. What has happened over the last decade for growth stocks is they've had the earnings appreciating and they've had the multiple expansion and values had the other way around. They've had earnings dipping and multiple compression. That's unusual. Most of the time, it's the way I described it initially. So what that means basically is that you get this mean reversion in the multiple you get a little bit of weakness in the earnings, but it doesn't matter because the multiple expansion more than makes up for it. At some stage, that returns to the market. And when it does, value will do pretty well and growth will have a little bit more of it. The glamour companies will have a, will struggle a little bit more. Can't wait for that to happen. <laughs> <laughs> Tobias, before we move to our final three questions that we always ask our guests on these interviews, we like to talk about bold predictions here at Equity Mates. We always do an episode at the start of the year, throwing out a few predictions that we think might happen throughout the year. And of course, COVID and, and the market has killed all of those predictions. But if you, <laughs> if you were to make a, a bold prediction, perhaps about how the market might end or something crazy that Buffett might do, what would that be? So this is, these are my bold predictions. I would never say these in public, so uh, you can you can <laughs> you can haze me as much as you want next time I come on. But basically, I think there's probably a second leg down as a lower low. But it won't matter for value because value is so beaten up. Same thing happened in 2000. Value started standing up. Uh, value was going up while the market was going down just because part of the market got so expensive. Then glamour, growth, tech names struggle for a decade. Even though the businesses are good and they're still growing, they've got to grow back into their valuations and that takes 10 years. So I think that the near term is the second half of this crash that we're still in is tech names getting really beaten up. In 2007, 2009, energy was very strong coming into it. Energy seemed to skate through the first half. Everybody said, well, it didn't really, how's this fair? Energy's up more than everybody else and it hasn't drawn down in the first half. But in the second half, it got taken to the woodshed. And I think that happens this time around. There's a lot of really junky tech names out there that have massively overbloated and they're going to be beaten up really badly. Value does a little bit better. So that's my prediction. For Berkshire Hathaway, it's hard to know, you know, that I think that they did get front run a little bit by the Fed this time around, where previously when they're in trouble, they go to Berkshire Hathaway and Buffett gives them really rough terms and Buffett makes a lot of money and Berkshire Hathaway makes a lot of money, but the companies themselves sort of overpay for the, for the bailout. This time they get bailed out by the Fed and by the federal government. I think that in a second leg, we'll, we'll, that remains to be seen whether that happens again. I think Buffett gets one more kind of trophy. Just for sentimental reasons, I would like to see kind of the greatest to ever do it go back into battle one last time with a cashed up balance sheet and, you know, buy something really, really big would be awesome to see. So I kind of hope that happens for, for Buffett. Yeah, I'm hoping he gets one more crack at it and he retires as the richest man in the world. He's, <laughs> he's so close. <laughs> I think he's been there, but he's, uh, he's kind of given a lot away as it's gone along. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Tobias, we really appreciate your time. And as Bryce said, we like to finish with a final three questions. But before we get there, if people want to read more or hear more from you, is there a particular place where you're most active where they can go and find you? I'm on Twitter all day long in US market hours. It handles a funny spelling. It's greenbacked, G-R-E-E-N-B-A-C-K-D. 
Uh, and I've got a website called acquiresmultiple.com. That's got all of the, we've got a blog and we put stuff up there all the time. It's got all the books and everything else on it. And uh, if you want to see the fund, or my so my firm is acquirersfunds.com, and that just gives a little bit of an overview of the way that we value and the way that we invest. And then the fund itself has its own website because you need that for compliance over here. It's acquirersfund.com. And if you want to see the fund itself, the ticker is ZIG, ZIG, it's listed on the New York Stock Exchange, been around for about a year. You can see all of the holdings of Zig if you if you kind of want to know what I'm doing without paying the management fee. <laughs> Don't give your secrets away. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we'll get stuck into these final three questions. The first one is, do you have any books that you consider must read? And these can be investing or otherwise. I can't, I'm not going to say my own. <laughs> that's, me, a, that's, a given, that's a given, that's a given. Only that. <laughs> if you want to do this stuff, the best place to start is Buffett's Letters, which are all free. And uh, I've read them, I've read them 10 times over the, over the last 20 something years. It's good to go in and just sort of, and read the early ones because that's when he's really thinking about investing and, uh, and what he's doing. That's all free. Security analysis, pretty rough read, but you kind of need to do it once just so you can tell everybody that you've done it. <laughs> <laughs> Intelligent investor, everybody seems to love it. I don't really love it that much, but it's a very popular one. My favorite book is a book called King Icon, which is about Carl Icahn and how he invests. They just give you his strategy at the start. That's a really fun read. White Sharks of Wall Street is awesome, really fun to read. And uh, The Dark Genius of Wall Street is another great one. That's about, uh, now I'm going to blanking on his name. Uh, don't worry about it. It's, it's basically about the uh, robber barons and what they, the lengths that those guys went to. That was real kind of activist investing where you had to get your own, you had to get judges and police officers and things to kind of to foreclose on companies. That's a fun read. Uh, so White Sharks of Wall Street is the 40s and 50s. King Icon is about basically the 80s and 90s. And uh, The Dark Genius of Wall Street is about robber barons from sort of the uh, late 1800s on. That's great. I haven't heard of any of those three books, so I'm adding them all to my list right now. So the, the second question is, what's your go-to source for investing information? I love Twitter. I can't go past Twitter. I, it's sort of become an indispensable tool for what I do. If you follow the right people, the, the information flow is incredible and you get it hours before it appears on the television. I don't watch, I don't have like CNBC on in the office or anything like that. It's just, I just have Twitter. And if you follow a mix of guys who are reporters and other investors and analysts, you get information as it's delivered and then you get analysis of that information. And I find it's a really great way of knowing what is happening. And anybody who's, you know, so Cliff Asness runs a $200 billion firm. He's a billionaire. He's got a PhD from Booth, worked at Goldman Sachs, and he's been running this firm for 20 years. He's on Twitter and you can interact with him. Jim O'Shaughnessy's on Twitter. He runs O'Shaughnessy Asset Management, similar multi-billion dollar firm. And they will talk to you. And so you can kind of, if you're polite, and you've got a sensible, you know, good question for them, they will respond. So I just think Twitter's phenomenal. That's that's really the, the thing that I would recommend to everybody. Yeah, and if you're polite, you can tweet it to Tobias and he might even answer your question as well. <laughs> I, I respond to everybody if you're not a dick. If you're a dick, then I just mute you and move on. I said, that's why you haven't been responding to us. <laughs> so last question, if you think back to you know your early days when you were studying law in Queensland or you were 
working at some of these big Australian law firms and thinking about investing in financial markets. What advice would you have for your younger self? Yeah, that's a great question. And I get asked that a lot. So the the things that you need to do to improve as an investor, this sounds crazy, but a lot of people don't do this. You have to have your own brokerage account and you have to stick some money into the brokerage account. Do some research on individual names and buy them and then hold them for a period of time and see what goes right and see what goes wrong. You should either keep a journal or keep a blog. So when I wrote Greenbacked, I wrote it anonymously because I just didn't want to be associated with it. But, you know, blogs were just brand new when I started doing that stuff. So I, I had been following this guy who was a deep value investor who wrote this blog about undervalued liquidation names that he had found in 2000. I thought it was amazing that you could look back kind of eight years later and see the positions that he had put on and some of the amazing returns that he had got out of those names over years and years and years. And that's kind of what it taught me, that it takes a really long time for some of these names to work out. And then you kind of get keeps you honest because you it's really easy to forget why you bought something or to forget how hard it was to sort of make the purchase decision. We're very good at taking on information and then forgetting part of it. So I always write down the thesis for why I bought something. They get shorter and shorter as as I've got older, but that's basically (laughs) like a 250-word paragraph of why I like this thing. And then when I come back to it six quarters later or something like that, whenever it is, you know, a year and a half later or whenever, and I look at it, because I'm like, why do I own this thing? Because it's gone. It's now down 50% or something and I'm, I forget why I own it and I look at it and I can say, oh, yeah, that's right. They do have that. That was that reason for doing that. That's interesting. That Has that progressed or not? Has management done what they said they were going to do? If they haven't, then it's probably gone. If they have, but the market hasn't recognized it yet, maybe buy a little bit more. Read as much as you can. Start investing as early as you possibly can and write down where you do things either publicly. Publicly is a great way to interact with other people. Don't have to do it under your own name, do it anonymously if you want to. But just write it down so you remember and you can learn if you write it down. Yeah, I like that. We've had the the journal pop up a, a fair few times in this answer. So I do wonder though, do you ever look back and read what you were thinking and just think, what the hell were you thinking back oh, then, you crazy guy? <laughs> it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing. Yeah. It's embarrassing. Cross that out. <laughs> but what it shows, like I go back, I've got Greenback has got every single thing I wrote ever starting in two November 2008. What is crazy is one of those posts is now there's this introduction to corporate finance book and it's in three editions of that introduction to corporate finance book. If they knew how little I knew back then, I don't know why they picked it up, but it's always, it's, it's in this book as like how to be a, how to, how to do liquidation value investing, which I love. But I go back and I look at those things and I'm like, that's just, the analysis is kind of pathetic, but it doesn't matter because I, I know now that I've learned a lot over that period of time and I'm, kind of I, I still enjoy going even though they're cringeworthy i go back and look at them and think oh that's interesting like I, I was thinking that then that's kind of fun the advice that we didn't take on was you did your blog anonymously whereas bryce and i are pumping <laughs> yeah, out yeah. some of that embarrassing analysis but we're just doing it in our own names <laughs> last names linkedin you name it <laughs> i put my name on it pretty quickly afterwards i put my like two years later and then uh i've never looked back from there now now i stick my name and everything it's terrible <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Tobias, it's been a fascinating and fun conversation. So very much appreciate your time and uh, hopefully we can reconnect sooner than 
you know, the last period of time, I think three years. So we look forward to seeing how, how you go over the next sort of 12 months or so and the progression of, of your fund. And uh, I just encourage our audience to follow you on Twitter and, and, and keep track because, yeah, it's fascinating the work that you do. So thank you very much. Yeah, thanks, Bryce. Thanks, Alex. It was a really fun conversation. I'd love to come back on again and uh, hopefully some of the things I said turn out to be true. So it's not, not really embarrassing. she's looking forward to it thanks Tobias thanks fellas thanks for listening to Equity Mates Investing Podcast a production of Equity Mates Media please remember that everything you hear in Equity Mates Investing Podcast is general advice only the content has been prepared without knowing your personal objectives specific financial circumstances or goals the host of Equity Mates Investing Podcast may maintain positions in the companies discussed before considering any investment please read the product disclosure statement and consider speaking to a licensed financial professional When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com.